0: Can we pray and ask God to be our teacher? Father, uh, you spoke and the worlds came into being. You spoke again and we beheld your glory. Glory as of the only begotten. Our Lord Jesus was the word incarnate and we love to know that you loved us so much that you didn't stay up there on the throne but came to be among us and as you taught your people as you gathered your disciples and taught them you gave us the privilege of peeking over their shoulders and hearing what you had to say to them so father as we hear your word this morning uh, expounded, explained, applied to our lives. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you'd break apart any hard places in us so that we could hear, that we could be changed, so that we could be humbly broken. Father, it's with that that I pray that I might decrease and you might increase, so your people here your words and not the ramblings of a silly person. Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story is in three parts. It's a whole story in three parts, and you would recognize a lot of passages in there almost from memory. This is sort of one of those target-rich environments uh, for for gospel knowledge and uh, scripture memory. Uh, Lee's been talking about being broken a lot in the last few weeks, hasn't he? In fact, he uses that a lot in his language, his gospel language. Being broken is vitally important to understanding the gospel. The fact is we are broken. We are broken. And we have to admit that to ourselves. And only Jesus can fix that in his own blood and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus very beautifully and with incredible love and thoughtfulness teaches us to be broken here in this passage. Kim for repair. And so at the end of this story, Jesus is going to say, if anyone wants to be my follower, my disciple, then they have to deny themselves first off. Uh, Secondly, take up their own cross and then follow. It kind of sounds backward, doesn't it? I mean, we want to follow first, and then along the way, we'll kind of get the other stuff right. But he says, no, you have to get the right stuff the right way around. Um, At the Billy Graham School of Evangelism, Billy used to say, you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And he said, wait a minute, Billy, isn't the whole idea to get them saved not to get them lost? And he said, no. They have to realize they're lost before the grace of God will make any sense to them. See, we get things back back to front. We get things backwards. This morning, we want to look at how the Lord Jesus engaged Peter. Now, Peter's one of my favorite figures in the Bible. Um, I think it's because the ways in which he's broken are a lot of the ways in which I'm broken. And so it really kind of, every once in a while, he just kind of nudges me a little bit, that Peter character. Um, uh, He's my good mate in that sense. And I want to encourage you that Jesus does what he does with Peter here, not to stomp on him, but to bless him by helping him to see his brokenness so that he can follow Jesus instead of, following Peter there's a lot of uh, Jewish humor in the Bible Uh, God has a super great sense of humor I mean look at this nose right (laughs) look at Alex (laughs) sorry mate that's just extemporaneous I, I couldn't help it Uh, He uses humor a lot to teach us things he knows we will more easily remember because of it's ironic, uh, it's disarming, and it's just plain memorable. Uh, There's nothing like a good Jewish pun. Uh, In fact, Jewish humor is built on puns and irony. Uh, It's like they invented it. (laughs) But you see it resident here in the scriptures and what Jesus does with Peter. And you're going to hear that pun as I read this passage again to you. And he uses this wordplay to call out and rename Peter to reinforce to Peter his brokenness and in a very powerful and enduring way, and in just the right way for Peter. What Jesus does is actually a blessing. So the first thing, the first section we're going to look at, uh, 13 through 18, is about being blessed and broken Peter style. Listen to what he says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, some say John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, others, one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you, you are Peter, Petras, and upon this rock, Petra, hear the pun? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Jesus says to him in a very formal way, he says, Simon Bar-Jonah. He refers to his dad. That's where we get our identity from our our parents. Uh, It's kind of formal, uh, and it's a formal Jewish way of inviting relationship. Who are you? I am Simon, the son of Jonah. And Jesus addresses him that way. Jesus starts over again in relationship with Peter by reminding him of his identity. You know, our parents are our parents. We don't choose our family. (laughs) We don't choose the country we're born in. All God arranges that, and it comes through our parents. So Jesus credits Simon Bar-Jonah, whom we know as Peter, with having responded to God's account in the Old Testament, the gospel that comes to us from the Old Testament, Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, son of the living God. Orthodoxy is a good thing. Truth is a God thing. But just because we recognize truth and can say it out loud doesn't make us broken. Because you see, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, tell us that even the demons know the truth, and they shudder. It isn't just enough to say the truth. It isn't just enough to know the truth. It's the implications of the truth that break us. Jesus then names him. That's an important thing in Hebrew culture. Because you see, to name something is to give it an identity and a meaning in the world. That's why God calls to things in the creation story. Do you realize he does that? He doesn't just say, I'm going to call that, he calls to it, he imbues its meaning on it. Adam names things and gives them a use. Jesus calls Simon Bar-Jonah Petros. It means rock, right? The Apostle Matthew, as he's writing this, is writing in Greek. So he writes Petros. But Jesus is actually speaking in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, Petros is Kephas. Do you hear the word? Uh, we get encephalitis from that, encephalitis. You know, uh, the head is, has, a, has an infection in it, right? So Petros is really in Aramaic Kephas, Cephas. Sometimes you pronounce it, right? And he says then in Greek, Petros is Petra. You hear the words? That's a pun. The pun is this. Everybody deferred to Peter. You know, Peter was a star, if even in his own estimation sometimes. Uh, Peter was the first among his brothers, or the head. And you remember Jesus called him that, Kephas, head. He's always the first to jump in and speak. He was the leader, a man of action. He was quick to confess the truth. Jesus says Peter got it right. But Peter wasn't yet broken. Jesus renames him. He says, Petros is Petra. Now, what's funny about this is when you put it all together, it means rock head. Imagine that, and having to wear that for all eternity. <laughs> He's Peter, and upon this rockhead, I'm going to build my church. It's not a redundancy. In fact, Peter is basically the Charlie Brown of the Bible. And it's going to stick. He's a rock head. He's going to build. God is going to build upon that rock head, not Peter, but God in and through Peter and others who are similarly broken. That's the rock. You see, when God shatters the rock, He doesn't do it to stomp on us. He does it to bless us because it's our hardness that destroys us. He builds the foundation, He creates the rock. Peter will own his brokenness when he takes back what he just said to Jesus in not too long from this actual passage. In the night that Jesus is arrested for heresy, tried, convicted, and crucified, Peter's going to repent and let go of his own strength and hold on to Jesus as tightly as Jesus holds on to him. And that's what Jesus can build on. In fact, that's the only thing he will build on. Now, that story would have been great as far as it went in confessing Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, son of the living God. But Jesus goes further in the story to get Peter to a place of brokenness, and he wants us to go there with him. He wants us to go into the story with him. The second part of this story is Jesus' death is about being broken in our place. Jesus' death is about being broken in our place. We celebrated it this morning. This is my body which is broken for you. He's broken in our place. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Okay, he's just confessed him to be the Messiah the Christ, son of the living God. Now, he's going to rebuke him. And he uses the strongest terms. He says, oh, no, you're not. Now, imagine that. I I don't even think Peter caught what was going on here. You know, uh, Peter is sort of a ready-fire-aim kind of guy. And uh, he's just, you know... It touched him. He said, no, 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 no way. No way you are. Jesus is setting the stage by turning his back on Peter as he starts to say this. And that suggests to Peter that his place should be behind him, not in front of him. Jesus has to turn around to speak to Peter. He says to Peter, you're not following me. You're getting in my way. He says, you are a stumbling block. That word translated stumbling block is scandal. That's where we get the word scandal. It's scandalous to suggest any permutation of the gospel that is not grounded in Jesus going to Jerusalem, being tried, found guilty, and in our place, dying on the cross, that we should believe in what he did for us on the cross. What we celebrated in the Lord's Supper, confessing by our taking it, the only thing that can nourish us to eternal life, his body and blood. Peter is saying to Jesus, No, that's unacceptable. You can't do that. That's scandalous. How often have I thought, You know, I, I'm sure I, I'm, I'm justified in this. You know, I'm sure I'm right on this. Only to be corrected by the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and humbled as a result because it's scandalous to think I have a better idea than God. Pride sees things from a different perspective than humility. Humility follows God because it's broken. Pride leads because it's really about me and my preferences. And my reasonable intentions. From a human standpoint, the gospel is nuts. Uh, How could the Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God, sacrifice himself for our sins on a cross of shame? It's undignified, it's a position of failure. How should, you know what Jesus should do? He should ride in on a big, big horse with the armies of heaven and the fire of God, and he should just destroy everything. You know, that's our visceral way of going at it. It isn't to go to the cross and die in a place. Peter is thinking, like human beings, like broken human beings think. (laughs) And that's what Jesus tells him. In order to hear God, we have to stop listening to our preferences and pride. And the third section of this story, discipleship is where brokenness follows Jesus. Jesus. Discipleship is where brokenness follows Jesus. Look at verse 24. I'm just going to read 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, as a result of what's gone on before, this whole story, here's where he ends up. If anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, he must deny himself, first thing. Second thing, take up his own cross, then follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because what does it profit if, there, if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jesus says, if anyone wishes to be a follower of mine, let him deny himself take up his own cross, then follow me. Do you see how this shakes out? Because we do get it backwards. We think we start out with following and then get the rest of the bits right as we go along. We get all purpose driven and get out in front, trying to help God out. I know I fight that all the time. I think it was a great job. Uh, that God did in, in uh, uh, because my sin pattern is what it is to put me in leadership. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, how, how topsy-turvy is, is creation? Who, who is it that knows how to do things in the family? Well, it's my wife. But God puts me in charge. How upside down is that? But you see, God in his great purposes, has a way of creating humility out of that collision. (laughs) That's what he's doing here. I'll give you some names of some people in history who, in their history, and you can go back and read these things, wanted to be Jesus' greatest disciple. They all said those words. Friedrich Nietzsche, the father of nihilism. There isn't a university campus that you can go on today that isn't post-postmodern. Friedrich Nietzsche is the father of nihilism. And he started out wanting to be Jesus' greatest disciple. Charles Darwin, father of evolution, wanted to be Jesus' greatest disciple. What happened? Karl Marx studied for the ministry. Do you know what happened? God disappointed them. And if God's going to disappoint me, Deny yourself, Jesus says. In the context, it literally means disregard yourself. To deny somebody means to disavow whatever of yourself, pride that would protect you, to disavow I, me, and my. I call that the unholy trinity. Because I, me, and my is what's always getting in the way. It's what Jesus is actually pointing out in this. What would happen to the way of living as the church, and the way we function, following Christ, if in denying ourselves, we realize that there's nobody to offend? You know, you'd never have a church split. You would have very agreeable people. You'd have very gracious people. You you wouldn't have people being offended all the time because once you deny yourself, there's nobody to get offended. What Jesus says here sounds completely counterintuitive. That's not the way we do. We usually do the ready, fire, aim. (laughs) The last thing we want to do is be exposed and admit that we're a mess. Admit that we're broken. Well, and this is really the hard bit. If I admit I'm a mess or I get it wrong, I lose face. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. Humiliation is based upon pride. Its currency is in pride. Being humble has no currency. It's bankrupt. It has to depend on the credit from somewhere else. It's empty. None of the things that embarrass us, if exposed, are even in the slightest hidden from God. Even so, God loved us. And loves us and will continue to love us so much that he sent the Messiah, the Christ, his only son, to die for us. Not the other way around. He's not looking for the best disciple ever, he's looking for our brokenness. Then he can build on that. Self denial because he first loved us. The gospel says, even knowing the terrible, broken things about us, God sent his son to take on himself. Justice is getting what we do deserve, but somehow in our minds, we're always wanting justice. Listen, you don't want the justice of God. Do you know what you get when you get the justice of God? Eternal hell. When we get what we don't deserve, the grace of God, the Lord Jesus takes upon himself all of our sin, what we profess here in the Lord's Supper. Jim Elliott said this of Jesus' work on the cross. He paid a debt who did not owe it for a people who owed a debt they could never repay. Hear that again? He paid a debt who did not owe it for a people who owed a debt they could never repay. Denying self means we agree we need to die so Jesus has the space to live in us. And so that pride has nowhere to live. That's the only thing God can build on. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, it's not about being sorry enough. It's about being broken. Denying yourself is just the first step. The next step, he says, is taking up your own cross. Now, I want to tell you three things as I start to close this thing off. Uh, Three things about the cross that are important. First of all, the cross is a punishment for a judged criminal, guilty. They even put a plaque up above the cross saying what your sins are. There it is, Ecce homo, behold the man. This is what happens, the Romans say, when you cross us. (laughs) Judgment. So taking up your cross means saying, God, I am guilty of awful things, even if I minimize them. The second thing about a cross is it was a way of making a person's guiltiness transparent to the world. It was an act of public shaming. So that means I can admit I'm scandalous and ashamed of myself. That means that when I'm accused of being a sinner, first of all, I'm not surprised that I'm a sinner. I am, after all, broken. I'm not surprised I'm a sinner or that someone would be so bold as to draw my attention to it. And along with that, I don't do spin on my sin. I can't deny it. Martin Luther had an interesting saying. Um, He said, sin boldly. And you think, well, wow, that's not quite right. What he meant by that is, get it all out in the open. Sin is sin. Call it what it is. That's what Martin Luther meant. Sin boldly. The third thing about a cross is, it's always lethal to the one hanging on it. That means ego can't live here anymore. I die to myself. When I do that, humility is the result, and I can become an ego-free zone. Then you can follow Jesus. Sin boldly. Be blessedly broken, people of God. Shall we pray? Father, we call out to you and ask that you would apply this word to our hearts all throughout the week so that we can be broken before the world, so that we can be that light. We can be a place where you show up and people actually see it in our brokenness. We ask, Father, that you will do this in Jesus' name. Amen.